0: Welcome to the Sense-Making in a Changing World podcast, where we explore the kind of thinking we need to navigate a positive way forward. I'm your host, Maura Gamble, Permaculture Educator and Global Ambassador, Filmmaker, Eco-Villager, Food Forester, Mother, Practivist, and all-round lover of thinking, communicating, and acting regeneratively. For a long time, it's been clear to me that to shift trajectory to a thriving, one-planet way of life, we first need to shift our thinking, The way we perceive ourselves in relation to nature, self and community is the core. So this is true now more than ever. And even the way change is changing, is changing. Unprecedented changes are happening all around us at a rapid pace. So how do we make sense of this? To know which way to turn, to know what action to focus on, so our efforts are worthwhile and nourishing and are working towards resilience, regeneration and reconnection. What better way to make sense than to join together with others in open, generative conversation? In this podcast, I'll share conversations with my friends and colleagues, people who inspire and challenge me in their ways of thinking, connecting and acting. These wonderful people are thinkers, doers, activists, scholars, writers, leaders, farmers, educators, people whose work informs permaculture and spark the imagination of what a post-COVID climate-resilient socially just future could look like. Their ideas and projects help us to make sense in this changing world, to compost and digest the ideas, and to nurture the fertile ground for new ideas, connections, and actions. Together, we'll open up conversations in the world of permaculture design, regenerative thinking, community action, earth repair eco-literacy, and much more. I can't wait to share these conversations with you. Over the last three decades of personally making sense of the multiple crises we face, I always return to the practical and positive world of permaculture, with its ethics of earth care, people care, and fair share. I've seen firsthand how adaptable and responsive it can be in all contexts, from urban to rural, from refugee camps to suburbs. It helps people make sense of what's happening around them and to learn accessible design tools to shape their habitat positively and to contribute to cultural and ecological regeneration. This is why I've created the Permaculture Educators Program, to help thousands of people to become permaculture teachers everywhere through an interactive online dual certificate of permaculture design and teaching. We sponsor global perma-youth programs, women's self-help groups in the Global South, and teens in refugee camps. So anyway, this podcast is sponsored by the Permaculture Education Institute and our Permaculture Educators Program. If you'd like to find more about permaculture, I've created a four-part permaculture video series to explain what permaculture is and, and also how you can make it your livelihood as well as your way of life. We'd love to invite you to join our wonderfully inspiring, friendly and supportive global learning community. So I welcome you to share each of these conversations and I'd also like to suggest you create a local conversation circle to explore the ideas shared in each show and discuss together how this makes sense in your local community and environment. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I meet and speak with you today, the Gubby Gubby people and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Sense Making in a Changing World show today, author of a brand new permaculture book, The Good Life, How to Grow a Better World, which is released this week, so go out and get your copies. She's based in Nippeluna, Hobart, and is a permaculture landscaper, designer, educator and changemaker. You may have seen her as guest presenter of ABC Gardening Australia, or YouTubing with her goats. Her bright pink hair and her bright pink house reflect the vibrancy of passion and commitment she brings to all her work for a climate-safe future and a just transition. My guest today is Hannah Maloney. Enjoy. Welcome to the show, Hannah. It's so great to have you. Thank you for joining me today here and, and thank you the other day too for um, joining the Perma Youth in Conversation. They were so absolutely thrilled to have you there you should have heard all the chatter after you left They was so excited oh
1: no I'm so pleased to be here and I was stoked to be on the Youth conference as well that was so wonderful yeah
0: yeah thank you so I'm sitting here um joining you from the land of the the Gabi people on the nestled on the banks of the river that is known as the Mary River but previously known as the Mukabula River mm. um you're you're down in Tassie. What's the traditional name of of Hobart?
1: Yeah, so Hobart's traditional name is Nipaluna, and we're on Muwanina country, which is the broader region around Nipaluna, mm. the base of Kunani, which is also known as Mount Wellington. Yeah. So, yeah, beautiful country down here. I look over the big ocean and river from where I am on top of a little hill. Oh, so,
0: amazing. Yeah. Where, where, you're not originally from? that area though are you? No
1: no so I'm from Meanjin in Brisbane so I grew up in Curilpa in West End um, so I have really fond memories of my childhood but also of South East Queensland and Northern New South Wales which is where I spent the first 18 years of my life um to this day, when I hear certain birds, or if I'm visiting in that region, and I can smell the humidity in the plants, it's it takes me straight back, like it's a home sense. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm originally from um sort of the area around the Kulin Nation along the Mullum Mullum River, and it's a similar thing, there's a different, like that's in, in the sort of the outer edges of Melbourne, and uh there's a dryness and a mm. certain scent of the oiliness of these apple gums which have amazing round leaves and there's something about that you know like i've been here for more than well, most of my adult life but yet there's still something about home yeah. and i and there's something i remember talking to a an elder around here saying that really always acknowledge where you know not just where you are but where you're from mm. and that that deep connection to country is is so much part of who we are and um and and you feel it and you know it, don't you? It's oh, of... yeah. It's,
1: it's in us and I think it's a beautiful thing to acknowledge that it's for everybody um, and it's we all have connection to place and that sense of place and will mean different things to us, but it's definitely there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, today is a special day for you. Uh, we may be hearing this a little bit after when we're recording this, but today is the day that your book, your first book, <laughs> the book short stores yeah um, congratulations thank what a, you what an amazing effort and a, a just the most apt book to have at this time so um what I I, I haven't actually had a chance to look at it yet because it's the yeah. bookstores so <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping you can tell us a bit about it but what I really did like when I was reading sort of the overview of it was that statement "You're saying that um by living an ordinary life you can make an extraordinary difference
1: Mm. and that
0: whole kind of notion that you know living a good life is really about you know having doing climate action Mm. and I I think sometimes we can feel a little bit I don't know that it's all too big it's all too overwhelming and that you know there's this concept of big picture activism and that well Mm. what we do in our own homes doesn't really make a difference and I and that's so disheartening when you hear those sorts of comments. But what you're talking about and where, where you are presenting is coming from a different place, a place mm. of what I hear you talk about as like a radical hope. So um, can you just walk us through a bit about sure. your book? Tell us, yeah. tell us about what, where it's come from and yeah. why you took the time in your amazingly busy life already to <laughs> end this and share it with the world
1: of oh, course. Cool. So the book is called The Good Life, How to Grow a Better World, and it's very much answering the question of how to live a good life in the face of the climate emergency, which is what we're living in now. And um, a lot of us have been thinking about this for decades, so I've personally been thinking about this for around 20 years and deeply worried about the climate science and the political trajectory uh, that we're on, which is a huge lack of leadership. And amongst many explorations of Um, you know, how to be a good activist (laughs) in my life, I kept coming up against this You know, just burnout. I guess I'm 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 running out of energy. I'm upset. I'm sad. I'm angry. It's like, how do we do this forever? Um, And that's where I really pivoted and turned to permaculture because it's quite a holistic design framework which can nourish yourself and nourish the broader world. And so that's what I've really latched onto to to keep me going as an activist um, in how to create a climate just and safe world. So that's my motivation and. The book very much does step people through how you can do that in a practical sense from a day-to-day on a small scale in your home or community scale, but it really sits in a broader framework of how actually we need to um, flex our muscles, our activist muscles to put the pressure on politics, media and industry to do some drastically swift transition, make sure it's just just transition as well towards a climate safe future. So um, yes, we should all compost, but it will not be enough if you don't vote for climate safe policies and demand, um, you know, safe practices by, by big industry towards climate safety. So we have to embrace both that individual and collective, which really is the same thing. So we have to, we have to drop, the ideas that okay, I'm just going to look after myself in my own patch, my own garden, my own farm, um, and we have to also drop the other side of the stories, which is don't bother doing anything at home. We've just got to be locking on into the forests or the machines, which is
0: fantastic. We actually need to do both of those things
1: and more. <laughs>
0: yeah. So um, what, is that? what is that more? Because if we're thinking about... So we've got to this point with permaculture and we're, you know, we've got our house in order. Ah,
1: oh, yeah.
0: What is that? What is that more? One mm. of those things that you're advocating Wonderful that we, we flex our muscles and do more of.
1: Yeah, so I think it will, it will be different for everybody and there's a couple of things to acknowledge where the more privilege you have, the more capacity you have to do more things. Um, there's a lot of people in the world who don't have that privilege to work towards climate safety and that is, they're just trying to keep a roof over their heads and, you know, food on the table. Fantastic. They need to keep focusing on that. And people like myself and others who have more capacity, more privilege, can carry those people through a through to a climate-safe future. So when I think about doing more, I think about how can I create help create a good life for everybody, not just myself. We personally have a very good life. It's very abundant. It's very beautiful. Uh, we have secu- housing security. We have meaningful livelihoods. We are so privileged. <laughs> mm-hmm. How can I flex my muscles to carry more people with me beyond my own personal family and friendship circles? So that's what I think about, and that's why I think about um, politics a lot i think about community structures that can help build resilience uh, locally and beyond um, if we've got that capacity why wouldn't we have a crack doing more
0: yeah so when you talk about politics what does that mean to you because you know i you know there's some things about like i just um earlier today was in Mullaney, the local town, and there was a protest outside the local politician's office. That's politics. Hmm. Getting involved down at your local community garden and transforming what's happening mm-hmm. on on um the commons is also politics. So for you, where do you where do you imagine that political mm-hmm. Activism, taking oh, place. both
1: of those things. I think um, I am very focused. Like in Australia, we have a federal election coming up within the year, so I am very focused on have, um, advocating for climate-safe policies. So that is a that's a short-term um, focus for me because that, that's an opportunity that's presenting itself. Uh, but beyond that, politics is everything. What you eat is political. You know how you how you transport yourself is political. How you invest your money is political. <laughs> yeah. I, I think people sometimes go. Hey, and they've got to keep the politics out
0: of permaculture. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm so glad you said that because yeah. it's exactly right, isn't it? You know, we sometimes have this this separate thing, but it, politics is all about the choices and decisions that yeah. we make, and how we organise ourselves, and how we're in relation to one another and the land and and our food system, and it's mm. all of that.
1: And I think yeah. it's a cultural dis a cultural disconnect. In Australia, I think this is a bit of a blanket statement, but I think there is a disconnect going, I don't do politics, it's over there, it's not for me, it's for that a certain type of person, and I'm not that type of person, um, when I really think there's a huge opportunity to, to reclaim our democracy, reclaim that politics, go actually... We want our country to look like this, and we want these people to represent us. And to remember that they are working for us. <laughs> yeah. We're not. We don't have to just follow what they say. They go, no, no, no. We can explain to them clearly and intelligently and compassionately. This is how we want our world to be, and you and lovingly demand that. Um, we don't have to just sit and take what's happening right now. It is completely irresponsible use of power which is happening um, and it makes me furious <laughs> so when I think about politics I think about you know um, voting responsibly but also supporting people to um, run for politics locally and nationally if, if need be but there we're seeing a really interesting movement of independent voices starting to stand up which are Um, can break free of, um, you know, really strong party lines which can hold people back. And I think how can we support more independent voices to, you know, get voted, get elected, which can actually really speak for the people, yeah. Have you ever thought of standing? Well, it's a good question. So one of my um, friends, Millie Rooney, who works with Australia Remade, she actually... uh, asks me this regularly and she <laughs> makes a point, she asks, but not just me, but she asks everybody in the space, she's like, have you considered standing for politics? Not necessarily um, to put pressure on people to do that, but to, to make people start thinking it's an option um, and that because really if you look at Australian politics it's very white and it's very male and that's how it's been for quite a long time um, and Millie Rooney talks about how we have to practice remembering that we can be there too um, and to potentially take that opportunity when it, if it does present itself and to be brave enough to have a go. Um, currently I'm, I'm not convinced I'd be the most useful person in that scenario. Uh, my skills I think are better used elsewhere however never say never because why wouldn't we try if it could potentially make the world a better place yeah Yeah. Yeah.
0: so in in the kind of um community activism space that you're occupying now you know as well as the work that you're doing as as an educator and now as an author and also the you know the the films you put out and what you're doing on tv what's happening in your local community what's where do you feel like you can step up and speak up in that in that space oh,
1: it's a really good change. question i think in nipaluna in hobart uh, around climate emergency there's some really pressing issues in our valley if you like so we're one of the most fire prone cities in australia with at the base oh. of kunani um the last big bushfire here was in 1967 and it burnt huge tracts of land like enormous tracts of land and it's very very primed to happen again. So every summer we're seeing dry lightning strikes, um, which is it's a really scary time. So summer is is has a layer of stress and anxiety over us. Because you're
0: on a hill and you're in a timber house,
1: aren't you? Oh yeah. So we're very, very vulnerable here, as is most of Hobart. Um, And so that's a quarter of a million people in the greater Hobart region. And so, when I think about climate action here, it's it's quite a practical thing that comes to my mind I go how um, and there's a lot of community groups working on um, and our local council I should really acknowledge do great leadership around bushfire safety, uh, cool burnings, cultural burnings with First Nation groups, uh, and but still it's not enough. It's underfunded. It's it's hugely problematic. And so, look, I'm not I'm not a leader in that space at all, but I'm an advocate and supporter. Um, so that's that's a really very um uh, practical thing that needs to be addressed in the immediate future so i think that's that's the sort of one burning uh risk or threat if you'd like to our nipaluna city uh but then i think what i my ongoing conversation i do with the, our community is how to build resilience which is very proactive so we do um What's become an annual edible garden tour in, around Nipaluna, so just to show people what's possible in small or awkward city spaces. So, everything from really steep to really small to really shady to really sunny, everything in between. Just to highlight that you can use some of the food. Um, sorry, use some of the land you have to grow some of the food you need.
0: So, um, just tell us a little bit more about that because I think that's a fantastic movement that seems to be starting to pop up in different places. Um, so how do you organise that? Is that a group view, yeah. or is like how does that work?
1: Sure, and I should acknowledge I, I copied this from the Darabin Council in Victoria, and I went, oh, that looks cool. <laughs> <laughs> so um, because I've been working in, in what I do for quite a few years, it's easy for me to know straight away. I can ask twenty gardens mm. um, in in my municipality that. Um, Could open their gates for the day, similar to the open house schemes, like open garden scheme. And I've been fortunate enough to get some um, grants from the local council to um, fund my time and another person's time to help organise a day, which is pretty straightforward. Um, We use our existing website for booking systems, and uh, you know, once people, we have the cap numbers, especially with COVID in mind. but, you know, once people have got all the, the bookings made, we give them their addresses and their instructions for the day and it's a self-guided tour. So it's quite, oh, um, it it's it's, means there's not a lot of infrastructure, a lot of staff required. They go, look, here's the address, here's your host's name and here's your time slot that you're allowed to go visit this beautiful garden. Mm. So uh, oh, it means. That's really simple, isn't it? Yeah, it's super simple because yeah. I think um, often we get over complicated in our brains, like, oh, I've got to do this big thing. And we have thousands of people go through but i don't i I just hang out in my garden all day. I'm not not running around the town.
0: No, (laughs) no, and you're just talking to people (laughs) as they come through and explaining things. And So what kind of feedback are you getting from people who participate in that? Oh, sure. It's hugely positive. It's
1: what I look at. It's probably one of the most successful things I've done in terms of community engagement and positive outcomes. Um, In permaculture, we talk about having systems with minimal input and maximum output, and that can be applied to a garden or a community project. Yep. this is one of the projects which has minimal input from me and maximum output which has many many ripples through um, our community and beyond so I still get sent pictures of people's new gardens or developing gardens um, or just you know uh, positive feedback of of going I feel more hopeful now I feel less anxious about our future because I understand what's possible in our city context um, and that's equally as valuable if not more valuable.
0: (laughs) And you know I think too there's something about knowing what's possible but also knowing that there's a whole lot of other people are doing it too and sometimes I think there's a sense of you know feeling alone in in the sort of the worry about it but when you know that there's this ripple of of people doing it all throughout the city I I think maybe that that can also help sometimes as well.
1: Yeah and I think a lot of these practical things we talk about for community resilience, which is food production, um, building community relationships and catching water, all those practical things, they're actually really quick to set up. Mm-hmm. And we saw that a little bit with the beginning of COVID, that things happen really quickly mm-hmm. when you want them to or when you need them to. And um, we used to run, help run the Hobart City Farm down here, which is now closed. But someone asked me the day, "He's like, why? Why aren't you running a city farm again, Hannah? We, we need it now." And I just said, "I just said to them, we could, we could set one of those up within a month. We would have it growing vegetables, and within three months, it'd be, it'd be um, you'd be harvesting from it." Um, and I've, I've, I've kind of go, I've gone to a space where those things can happen when people will really get behind and support them, rather than only doing them um when people some people are loving it and not getting the support you need to make it flourish yeah so i've got these. i've got a lot of tools in the back of my brain like these things will happen when we when we the need is there and then they're going to pump in the best way yeah um so yeah, it's an interesting categor, categorization of how i how do i spend my energy now to get it's to kind
0: of the, like triaging isn't it it's kind yeah. of like you look at well, I've, I've got this much energy yeah, and this is this is where the the most value is. Like you are saying before, that principle of like what can you put in to get the the most impact. And yeah. I think it's a really important thing to constantly ask ourselves. You know, when we are focusing on on this kind of work, is to think, you know, have that reflective time. Think is is what I'm doing the most effective use of my time. Mm. And that bigger picture of you know creating a climate safe future is is kind of the goal. We can become very busy. Oh, yeah. You know, it's so easy to busy ourselves with a whole lot of stuff. We were talking about this just before we pressed record and, you know, there's so many great things to say yes to all the time. But where, you know, and how you decide that is is, is really challenging sometimes. But mm-hmm. I think it's it's important to, to stay in that reflective space and, and also to know, like you just said then, that you can, you know, You've done it, you've seen that it can work, mm. and it's really, yeah, it needs that sort of momentum to make it happen. Mm. I wonder what else about, like, um. you also work in the transport and energy space.
1: Oh, Tell us a bit about that. I think you're referring to the Good Car Company. Is that I right? I think
0: I am, yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Just checking. So technically I'm not involved in this. This is a business um, that my partner and two dear friends run, and they import second-hand electric cars from Japan um, at reduced price and they run what they call community bulk buys across Australia so people can access them uh, more affordably and also not have to do the insane amount of paperwork and processing involved in bringing a car in from a different country. So um, I'm on the, very much on the periphery of that, but it, uh, we're all very interconnected. So they started that business around two years ago, I think, Um and it was directly after the last federal election, actually, where we were really disheartened that Liberal government got back in with no climate-safe policies at all, mm-hmm. um, and the complete opposite, actually. <laughs> so that was the very much the, like the um, motivation is like, what else can we do? Um, so we've got my own business, Good Life Permaculture, which we really value that work, um, and Anton and two other friends. When, what about transport in Australia? Australia it's hugely problematic with the amount of emissions it produces and um, helping the, that transport industry to transition to electric vehicles is one small thing. It's not the solution at all, but it is part of a bigger picture of what could be happening. And if you look around the world, there are leaps and bounds ahead in electric vehicles, um, normalising them, I guess, and making them affordable. Uh, Australia is... Oh, woefully behind so <laughs> the good car company are just having a crack We're like and that's the that's the beauty of this um of what people like myself and you and my partner Anton are doing we are ordinary people trying to make extraordinary things happen and and some of them are working and how wonderful and a lot of things that we've tried haven't
0: worked <laughs> <laughs> but like you say you give it a crack and you know yeah. <laughs> and if it works it works and if it doesn't It doesn't mean that it's necessarily even a failure. That there's so many other things that you either learnt from that, or that that have sprung out of that as a, you know, it's kind of compost something else to happen, you know.
1: Yeah, and and there is like um, in our culture, failing is not a good thing, and it's like we we struggle with that because we've had many failures in our life, and and it's a real. You have to work really hard to actually to remind yourself this is not a bad thing. Mm. We've learned so much through this process, and now look what this new pathway presents itself, which you couldn't have possibly imagined previously. So, mm. um, and I think that's you know we we have that level of privilege where we can take some risk, and we, and being in a partnership, Anton and I can hold each other a little bit when, um, I, when I started my business quite a few years ago now, I just quit my job. I went, Anton, can you cover the rent for the next six months, please? <laughs> um, and similarly, when he started his business, I'm like, I'll carry, we now have a mortgage, We've, we bought a property with, with the bank, um, I'll carry the mortgage for the next two years while you do this, you know? Um, and so we tag team and I think that's really important to acknowledge that uh, that privilege of having a partner. We can support each other to take more risks, yeah. Um, so it's not for everybody, but it is for a lot
0: of us. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. And and um, taking taking the risk. And you know, I think I don't know about for you, but I can't not take the risk. Mm. Yeah. Sometimes
1: I actually go, "Do you'd know, be nice to have a rest or just um, be a bit more comfortable emotionally?" But then I then I might have a um, like a week off or something. And like, okay, I'm ready now. <laughs>
0: You know, and like while the while the holidays on, you know, I have have the I go away and I unplug, but I get a book and it's yeah. full of ideas and plans and yeah. projects. By the time I come back, and I, oh, so cool! My mind just doesn't stop about it. Yeah, and I think so- it's because it's not that I don't, you know, I do enjoy going out for a break or going sailing or walking or hiking or camping or whatever it might be. But my mind is completely always, you know, thinking about well. What's happening in the world, and and how is it that we can, you know, make yeah. a contribution to that? And
1: uh. yeah. I think someone once said to me, "So you know, a life of activism, you have to be get comfortable with being uncomfortable, um, because you're constantly trying to push your, outside your comfort zone, stretching yourself and flexing those activist muscles as much as you can, mm-hmm. um, and constantly trying to do more within your capacity and." Mm-hmm. And it's, it's still hard for me to um, be comfortable with that all the time. Like I'm, I'm naturally more of an introvert and I, I push myself to do more and more public things because I can see it could be useful. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not a natural skill. But I have remember hearing Bob Brown speak many years ago how he was naturally this is my own words but he um was implying how he was also quite an introvert as a young person and he just practiced practice 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 so he could uh hold that public space so beautifully and courageously as he did for many decades and still does today um so people like that are a real inspiration to me I'm like oh you can just practice this stuff <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah why not
0: <laughs> yeah I, you know and i i th- I sort of see the same sort of pattern in what I do. Like I remember there was a point when I was about, I don't know, 18 or 19, I wouldn't get up and speak in public. No, absolutely no way. I would just not. Um, And it took a long time of just trying. And I think what happened was that the flame inside me was so strong about wanting to, to speak about certain things that it was that that spoke. It wasn't me. It wasn't me speaking in front of a group. It was that bigger picture, mm-hmm. and and I think somehow, you know, when you when you are speaking from the heart or from you know that you're part of this movement towards uh, change in a certain way, it just kind of I, I don't know even where the words come from. Sometimes they're just kind of there, and they yeah. how they come.
1: That's wonderful. I think it's important to foster that level of trust, which I'm definitely still trying to work on. It's like trust that A, you belong here, your, your voice is valuable and it's, and it's important to be um, heard. Um, and, and B, trust your intelligence and experience that you um, your words are meaningful. Yeah. And that's a, it's an interesting thing to keep practicing and keep trusting that that feeling. Yeah,
0: Yeah. Mm. and it's a little bit too like I think, you know, permaculture itself is a practice as well. It's not like, okay, you can come and do one of our courses or something and all right, you're done. You know, like that's the opening of the door and then, you know, it's like what we're talking about with with David and um, last night with his new movie about reading landscape, that Mm. that's a practice as well, you know, that Mm. you don't just come with all that. Knowledge and skill about how to read landscape. It's it's about taking the time to notice and practice and and mm-hmm. and um, be in be in the landscape, be in community, be in communication. Um, you know, design, design, design. Speak. You know, like it's just putting yourself out there and being finding those opportunities. Mm-hmm. You know, I sort of I think I was saying before I don't say no very often I, because I just keep saying yes to different ways. I think that it might be able to to bring. Bring something to the table. Yeah, um, it's beautiful. <laughs> so, I, I, going back to the energy thing, I was kind of got a bit distracted there. I was, <laughs> what I was asking you about was, you know, the the bigger part of that question was around transition. Mm. And if we're to transition away from oil and gas, like what, where is the where is it that you're speaking maybe through your book or through the work that you're doing in your community um you know able to sort of offer some insights for people about how does that even happen particularly when you're living in a city
1: oh sure so um i think that But again there'll be many different answers depending on people's needs and so cars are incredibly useful tool uh especially for people who i've got some friends with chronic fatigue and they rely on cars to get from their home to the corner shop Uh, what a wonderful tool to support them in their lifestyle um in their meaningful life um and so i think cars are not evil is what i'm trying to say i think we could use them more smartly and in cities we have an incredible opportunity to share more resources so there is um there's a number of enterprises that are set up across Australia now that you can um, have do car shares. So you don't have to actually own a car, but you can book a car use in on the online calendar. Mm. And in Tassie, we actually sold our car in 2019 and entered an informal car share agreement with some friends around the corner and because there's no formal car share enterprise in Tassie at the time. Um so we just set up our own online calendar and it's been going for yeah over two years and it's really great. Fantastic! <laughs> and it means that we have oh we yeah we sold our car and I bought a second electric bike and um we made them really big long bikes so we can put our daughter on the back of them. Um and that's you know that's not for everybody, but it works really well for us. We're really happy with that. And we also, if we need to do, um, if our car share friends need their car, we'll just rent. We'll just hire a car. It's it's you know, there's so many cars just hanging out in the city. <laughs> and so I think there's like it's not a perfect solution, but it is a very quick and instant solution for a lot of us. Um, and when we talk about transition, we can't go from where we are now to this utopian fantasy of everything's perfect like it, that's probably never going to happen I, like so let go of that but hold hold on to elements of it <laughs> but I think it's like what are some really um practical realistic pathways and steps we can start doing now and there's, there's some of them I just outlined of being really straightforward you just have to be a bit more organized and think a bit more creatively sometimes um, another big obvious one in cities is that public transport infrastructure could be so much more, um, especially in Latruita and Tasmania, we don't have fantastic public transport. So most of our towns and cities are designed around using cars and not um, trains, buses, uh, all those other op- options available to um, some of us. And so I think that's a, that's a missed opportunity. So I do get a bit disheartened when I see another new highway going in I'm like, why don't you just invest a, a you know, your tenth of that in good bus systems? <laughs> like there's a lot of short-term thinking going on with um, infrastructure development, and that's that's a
0: shame. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And is there is there a really big movement? Well, it, it feels it from a from an outsider's perspective, but for the relocalization of the, the food system in Tassie, what is that scene really? intact there in terms of uh-huh. being able to access yeah, what you need.
1: It's an interesting question. I think Lituita Tasmania has always had a really amazing food scene or culture mm-hmm. is a better word. Uh, we are blessed here as we, because we're an island we we have we have you know we have a level of um I I don't think protection is the right word, but we've got this nice level of sovereignty or something like we we really look after our own if you like <laughs> um, but we have incredible diverse farms and food systems so we can eat we eat so well here and I forget that because when I have traveled in the past on the mainland of Australia, I come back I'm like oh, I was so lucky just just the quality of the, the fresh produce, even if it isn't um, organic, it's still significantly tastier and more fresh. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is really interesting. So I think food down here is really um important. It's part of our culture. Um and people I know when um tourists come, they're like, we're just here to eat. And I and definitely I'd say in the past 10 years, like I've been in and out of Tassie for around 19 years, and in the past 10. I think food tourism has really just boomed um, and but that's led to a lot more opportunity maybe for more um, producers um, to really craft what they're doing. And so there's been more celebration of local food production and, um, you know, local food eating as well amongst that. Uh, there's, there's also a really wonderful, uh, I guess, movement of young farmers and small farmers um, and family farmers around Tasmania. I'd say we could always have more because uh, there's, we need more local food diversity um, and resilience uh, everywhere, really, including are Tasmania. Yeah,
0: I think it's a really exciting movement, isn't it? The young farmers movement. That I I find that so encouraging because they're coming into it an, and often doing it differently. Mm.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and like really, uh, like especially when you think about land ownership, like so, it's more and more. Um, that's not possible for a lot of people um, of all ages, but especially young younger people. Um, and it's like, okay, how can we farm without owning land or owning, you know, tens of thousands and sometimes more dollars worth of equipment, you know? Um, so that's been like there's more land sharing happening, there's more, you know, leasing of land and different kinds of arrangements, which, again, you can look overseas and you'll find lots of really established precedents, but here it's still a bit strange, a bit new. Is
0: any community land trusts going on down there at all yet? Oh. It's something that's starting to, yeah. I, I hear lots of talk about, I know, again, overseas as well, it's so well established, mm. and this idea of actually creating community land trusts, not just for you know community farms but also for you know community type housing affordable mm. housing i wonder too whether the that housing affordability is starting to affect younger
1: oh you know, yeah younger people. Oh, it's, it was crazy 10 years ago it's even crazier now you know and i think um someone just told me yesterday i house around the corner for myself for 1.9 million dollars and it was, it's not even that great, that house, you know, and, and this is Little Nipaluna in Hobart. We've got a really poor economy in our island and I bet you 10 bucks it wasn't a local who bought that house, it's someone from Melbourne or Sydney. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> you we're having the same issue here in, in yeah. um, Upper Amalini and, you know, here in the eco-village. You know, there's um, not, not so much here in the eco-village but around the hills that, yeah, people, people who've been living here for decades can't live here anymore. They're happy yeah. to move away. It's a really
1: sad thing when people have to leave their community that they've grown up with sometimes or lived with for a long time and what does that mean for our culture? And so mm-hmm. and when people are being displaced from where they've grown up. So it's a... Yeah, it's a it's a big chat and of course there's homelessness amongst that as well which so we have a high housing crisis where people can't even you know get access to secure housing let alone a long-term or quality housing so um, I actually I talk about it in my in the book I wrote because um, sometimes people think well uh, they, they forget that things like the Housing industry is actually part of the problem and solution towards countering the climate emergency, and so these things will be found in every sector there 's huge problems, but there 's huge opportunity as well towards thinking more creatively and living differently yeah mm-hmm.
0: yeah i I wonder you know like in an urban area like yours, what are some of the solutions that we could like opening up spare rooms, creating space for cabins like what what are the sorts of things that that you 're suggesting?
1: Yeah, like there's definitely, um, and we've seen it everywhere, like the tiny house movement, like where you don't actually have to own land but you might park a, a, a moving house on somebody's property. So there's, there's those kinds of really quick fixes, if you like. There's other um, uh, interesting ones that is a, a project called Home for Homes, which oh, the big issue set up. So it's a national program and it's where um, people can put a t- I think it's zero... 0.01% of, um, of the amount that they sell their property, they, they give that tiny percentage to Home for Homes and they invest that into buying homes for the homeless people and and it's quality housing. So um, there's, it's been working really well and it's, it's, it's a really simple, again, minimal input, maximum output program where you can harness uh a tiny bit of surplus surplus cash and redirect that to creating a different way of um, of housing and potentially could eliminate homelessness if people joined in. Yeah.
0: Fantastic. Thank you for yeah. sharing that. I haven't yeah. heard about that before. I know. <laughs> I know there's something else that I'd heard you speak about before that's there's not, It's there's a whole completely different issue, but it's around rent and it's about mm-hmm. paying the rent and that's something that oh, I've heard yeah. you speak a lot. Do you want to just... Chat a bit
1: about that, maybe. Sure, sure. So it's about how do we uh, acknowledge and centre First Nations people and communities in um, acknowledging that we're living on their unceded land uh, across all parts of Australia, and that we can. I talk about this a lot in my work, making sure that, that there's really good acknowledgement there. Especially in permaculture, it's important. We stand on the very broad shoulders of First Nations cultures across the world. Uh, paying the rent is one really uh, tangible way we can, uh, I guess, put your money where your mouth is. So I do a monthly donation to a local Tasmanian Aboriginal centre um, down the road from us, and that's just an ongoing, no-obligation donation going, look, I acknowledge I live here on your unceded land. Here's the money that you can determine what you do with it, um, do what you will with it. And they run fantastic programs in a range of um, different areas for, the Tasmanian Aboriginal community, it's a way of just um, giving back some self-determination when so much has been taken away from them, so much Mm -hmm. it's just devastating to really think and feel into that. So we try to do things in every angle. That's like one of the easier things I can do. I'm like, why wouldn't I do that? (laughs) Um, And some of the harder, more complex things I do is ongoing self-education about um, racism, um, colonization, uh, white supremacy—what uh, what that means? Uh, what's that meant for past two hundred years? What that means now, and how I, you know, um, not willingly, but help perpetuate that in the society that we live in, and how can I help unravel that? And so, self education is it's again, it's a it's a uncomfortable thing because you have to go, oh shit. <laughs> Park. oh sorry i swore <laughs> it's, it's not an easy pleasurable walk in the park uh, park yeah um, how do you how do you yeah.
0: educate yourself on that
1: yeah i guess it's a lot of reading a lot of listening so many podcasts now mm-hmm. so um people go oh where should i look i'm like i feel like i see it in every direction i look like so many books and um, podcasts and radio interviews and um essays are out everywhere like i, I don't feel like
0: that's an excuse i think you no, just it's, it's just opening up <laughs> opening up your mindscape yeah. to see it
1: yeah it's everywhere um and so and a lot of first nations voices in australia and across the world are incredibly generous with providing really coherent resources for white people <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is so <laughs> kind of them um yeah. and really breaking it down very simply so i i just read there's nothing, nothing in particular I would point people to, but like there's so much to explore. And um just to acknowledge, you know, the, the three permaculture ethics that we we work from are earth care, people care, and fair share. And I really come back to that people care ethic. If if we're real, if we really want to be authentic people working towards good change, let's start centering the people who are suffering the most. Mm-hmm. Um, and First Nation communities are very much part of that, that, that pool of people. Um, we lose nothing and we gain everything when we do this. Like people, sometimes people are like, oh, it's too hard, uh, it's too confronting, I don't like this. And it's like is this is a good positive thing. Um, positive things aren't always easy but they are always better,
0: yeah. And I guess too it's, it's um, another group of people that is really needing um, some support of the refugee communities and asylum seekers. And I wonder whether there's any work with the permaculture community and those communities where you are. Yeah, so uh, absolutely
1: acknowledging that, Morag, And um, obviously we're seeing huge atrocity in Afghanistan at the moment. It's very much in the spotlight. Uh, We could go to, uh, unfortunately, a huge amount of countries and see similarly atrocities. Um, And... So we're in Tasmania. We don't have a huge influx of refugees in recent years. We 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 did, but it, it very much slowed down with political decisions, and so that was very sad to see. Um, there is amazing uh, different organisations like the Migrant Resource Centre and associated um, groups who do fantastic ongoing programs of people to welcome them here and also help uh, integrate them into the broader community in different ways, which is wonderful and. Um, when we ha- um, in the some some years ago, we had quite a lot of people coming from different African countries and parts of the Middle East, and we uh, partnered with the what's called the Phoenix Center, and uh, which is a branch of the Migrant Resource Center, I believe. Um, and we would work with newly arrived refugees to uh, build food gardens in their rental properties. Like no one owned a house but we just build these great gardens with them, make lots of food and play heaps of soccer and listen to lots of hip-hop. <laughs> <laughs> <Interesting>. <laughs> and, it, again, it's a really simple thing. People go, oh, Hannah, why would you even bother? Like, it's only like a six-month project. I'm like, it's cool. Like, Why wouldn't you have a crack? So this is, we're making new friends here and these people, I, we don't even know the trauma they've been through. Um, <laughs> we can only imagine and and I can guarantee it'd be devastating and the very least we can do is welcome them to our community in this way you know so I I, I tell that story just to highlight it doesn't have to be a big thing doesn't have to be um, a huge commitment necessarily but every bit helps I really believe that and um, and you know you never know what's going to stay in somebody's hearts and mind as a positive impact for for their life and yeah yeah
0: and you know having someone who just Opens their arms and their hearts and their their big broad smile and and have a game and a laugh and you know have a dance even you know like that, as well as the food gardens and just the book that it's it's so amazing, yeah, yeah,
1: so these little things can have big impacts, yeah,
0: yeah totally, wow, mm-hmm. so I just want to sort of if we can bring our conversation back into your book, oh, yeah. because i'm I just think. Uh, this is something that I would love everyone to to grab a hold of and have a look. But I'm I'm also totally fascinated by how you even make time to write a book. And I this is a very selfish question. <laughs> what is your writing process like? I just don't seem to even find a moment to even write yeah. my blog posts at the moment, let alone a yeah. book
1: yeah how do you do it <laughs> well I um it's a funny thing so I was approached by a firm press who were the publishing company to write the book and I, I initially said oh thank you so much but no thanks I'm so busy there's enough books in the world you know thanks see you later and they, they you know gently just persisted and they were which I'm really grateful for and they said look it's a good opportunity to add another voice to this conversation, a really positive voice. Um, we need more of that um, solution-based uh, thinking in this time. I'm like, okay, yeah, you're right. And so I, I said yes and then then they said, can you do it in four months? And I went, oh, <laughs> oh I, I maybe. They went, oh, you know, you know, you can recycle a lot of your writing that I've done over the years on my blog. You can cut and paste some things. And I went, oh, yeah, that doesn't sound too hard and then it ended up being i wrote the whole book from
0: scratch you know yeah yeah, yeah i've tried doing that too like recycling a post i just think it it was written at that time with that yeah. thinking and those examples and and i've grown since then and like, yeah. there's something new i want to add in and I, yeah
1: so yeah, i can i, I
0: can understand I, that yeah i
1: definitely <laughs> overcommitted um I don't know what it is, but in me if I commit to a deadline 99.99% of the time I'll just stick to it and I'll just, I don't, it's in me. I just can't not try. And so um, this book was written around a very busy time in my life, but I i would, um, I took myself away I think for two weekends and I and was at the beginning of the book and towards the end of the writing process just to try to have deep thinking time. Um, and then in between it was a lot of 4am starts and occasionally 3am starts um, and I'd have two to three hours some mornings um, and then occasionally a day here or there. But I, I did find it really hard in the daytimes to focus on that because, you know, life it's quite busy. I work from home but, um, you know, I have to talk to a client or my daughter will come running through and, oh, the goats need to be fed. And so it's very, lots of distractions. <laughs> but i i remember hearing um lee sales talk about writing one of her books um who's an abc australian journalist and she she wrote her book i think i think over 2 years i can't quite remember but she said she every 5 minute break that she had that's where she would write it i was like woah <laughs> like that's in between amazing. interviews or whatever whatever oh, work project gosh. she was doing and um, she said there was no other way, but it did take two years um, yeah. of that. Uh, and I'm sure, hopefully, she had some longer little spurts in there yeah. as well.
0: Because <laughs> <laughs> I just can't, I mean, I'm still, when I'm, you know, in five minutes, I'm still just kind of setting, like catching my thoughts, know. you know, just I know. I know.
1: I do, I do. Um, oh I I have some envy for some some people's brains seem to work a lot quicker than others and they they just like they're sharp Mm -hmm. they can just make it all fly together I'm what they
0: call a a reflective thinker (laughs) Yeah, I often take myself off for a walk down along the river and you know if I'm stuck for ideas and I'll go for a walk along there and And they will all become absolutely clear. And then sometimes by the time I get home, I've remembered other times it's just gone. And I think, oh, no, I had it all worked out. Or I'm lying in bed, you know, just in that sort of moment when you're waking up. And I think, okay, I'll just set my mind to think about this particular, Mm -hmm. you know, challenge that I have at the moment. And, you know, like a writing challenge or a project or something. And I'll work it all out. And then I'll nod off and I'll wake up again. I was like, "Oh no, it's gone." <laughs> but you know, it's—I think it's there somewhere. And then it just—I just need to sort of. So I think sometimes when I stop trying, yeah, it just—it yep, kind so of happens. But um, yep, but true. I think I think like you're saying, just having a daily practice of a, yeah, a few yeah hours.
1: having that pattern does definitely helps. But I think also, um, I'm very good at, um, I guess I guess. You could say pushing myself, but I can go. Oh, Hannah, there's an opportunity here. If um, do you want to take it or do you want to let this one slide? And some and a lot of them, I go. Oh no, this is a good one. I've got to really try, and I just make it work. Um, yeah. And for for short bursts of time, which could be you know a few months here or there, I can make that work. I couldn't sustain that the whole my whole life. <laughs> but I think, okay, this four months it's going to be big. Four months, let's do it. And then I just yeah. kind of go. And then um, I've actively this year. I've actually cut down my workload a lot this year because um, I just I needed to get some balance back into my life. So now I have weekends every weekend. I won't work in, at four a.m. this year. <laughs> but I often start. I often start at six a.m. But um, but I, I won't. I could not. It's not a compulsory thing. Yeah.
0: yeah. Which is good. Good on you. Well, yeah. I need to take a leap out of your book. I'm <laughs> often still up at a. i I'm, I'm the other end. I'm an, I'm the night oh, owl.
1: Yeah, I'm an early bird, yep.
0: <laughs> and, and you know, it was because when my kids were little, well, they still are kind of little. I have a 15-year-old, a 13-year-old and an 8-year-old. Oh, um, yeah. And the uh, it was when they went to sleep you know, because mm. you know, I homeschool and, you know, they're around my offices at home, but it was when they went to sleep was when the house was quiet, mm-hmm. you know, and it wasn't, it was just kind of like a breath out and then all of a sudden it was these moments of clarity. And so I just trained myself mm. to make my my work time in those spaces in between life, you know, mm. and uh, that's kind of guess how I ended up there. I keep thinking, oh, it would be nice to sort of, Get up really early and do the other end. Yeah, I did it a few times. <laughs> said, you know, you must get up early. It's the best thing for your body. I felt jet lagged for weeks. Oh <laughs> Going no, so out of whack.
1: So anyway, yeah. no, but do I do it.
0: think yeah, do
1: what works for you. Yeah,
0: I think you know, making giving yourself a weekend. I think that's that's something mm. that's probably a really good step to take. Yeah. So what what's coming next? You? What if, what's your next big burst of, of projects you've got coming um, along? Well, I do have
1: a thing. I'm not sure I'm allowed to tell you what it is. I don't know. Oh,
0: well, <laughs> if you can't tell me, no, that's fine. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't know if I can. <laughs> but the, I, I've got lots of ongoing rolling projects. So I do have a quite a, um, a large landscape design uh, workflow. So I'm always working with a range of clients on um, developing their beautiful landscapes to be regenerative, regenerative and um, beautiful. Um, and then we have a great calendar of workshops that we have a, a, a source of teachers that come and go on as well. Uh, but they do, I do have a couple of other projects there in the background that I'm just, uh, you know, just. Dis- Developing, I don't think I can tell you about them yet. Sorry.
0: Oh no, that's all right. That's fine. <laughs> well, good luck with those. Yeah,
1: Well, I guess I guess the big one for me right is in front of my face. This week I launched my book um, in yeah. Luna. To, we've got uh, down here. We haven't got COVID restrictions, which touch wood. Um, so we've got managed to having three hundred people in the local town hall, um, which feels really special. Like it feels yeah. nice that we can gather. Because it is special, <laughs> um, so that's for the next uh, month. I think I'll be really doing a lot of community chats, with my book, and and online as well, uh, and just and focusing on that kind of just having that those climate conversations. Yeah, that's uh,
0: huge. Have yeah. you have you got like have they? Is your publishers organised for you to do a whole lot of talks? You know, radio around the country doing yeah. and all sorts of things, so, so you doing, can't travel.
1: That's right. So, we're doing a lot of online things, and then in Tassie, I'm going to do a mini Tassie tour up in the north northwest regions, which I'll I'll launch shortly. Um, so that we'll do yeah, lots of online things and and some local things as well. So fantastic. That's my immediate focus, and then yeah, I'll do some other things um, as well. On top of my other workload, which are all centered around how to build skills and resilience towards climate safety and justice. And so that's as much as possible. I try to center that in my work. It's all, it's all that's why I do my work, but it's not always at the forefront of the conversation. I'm I'm like, how can we make that at the front of every conversation? It's what I'm really interested in. Yeah.
0: Fantastic. Yeah. Well, good luck with your your coming tour and the release of your book. It's it's a wonderful contribution into into the world of permaculture but broader than permaculture into the world of, you know, how we can actually move forward in a really positive and and hopeful way. So thank you for taking that time and dedicating yourself (laughs) at your 3 a.m.s to to bring that to life. Uh, Thanks for having a chat with me. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Gorgeous. (laughs) Thanks, Anna. Thank you. So that's all for today. Thanks so much for joining me. If you like a copy of my top 10 books to read, click the link below, pop in your email and I'll send it straight to you. You can also watch this interview over on my YouTube channel. I'll put the link below as well. And don't forget to subscribe, leave a comment. And if you've enjoyed it, please consider giving me a star rating. Believe it or not, the more people do this, the more podcast bots will discover this little podcast. So thanks again, and I'll see you again next week.